Welcome to the November 2018 ATS Section on Medical Education podcast on Academic Writing, the Introduction Section. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. A great time for food, football, and family. I'm your podcaster, Deepak Pradhan from New York University. So I was thinking about how so many go through medical school, residency, and even fellowship, and then are charged with educating and creating future physicians and specialists. And it's always funny, the inherent assumption that just because you're a content expert, that therefore you're just naturally good at everything else. A good teacher, a good mentor, a good researcher a good manager or administrator, a good communicator, a good writer. These are all skills that, much like any skill, require some baseline knowledge, deliberate practice, and intermittent reflection and improvement. So it's with that purpose that I thought I'd tackle one of those useful skills, which is academic writing, in a series of podcasts to help provide some structure, some educational theory, practical tips for success, and pitfalls to avoid. Hopefully, you'll find these podcasts on academic writing useful. So the most common structure since the 1980s that has dominated scientific academic writing is the one with which you're most familiar, the IMRAD model, introduction, methods, results, and discussion. And typically, it's conceptualized as a funnel or hourglass construct where the intro is broad in nature, then narrows to the scope of this specific study in the form of methods and results sections, and then broadens out again with the discussion and conclusion sections. And the Imran model is not an arbitrary structure, but one that's grounded theoretically in the true process of how we engage in scientific discovery. We recognize that there is a problem or issue. We try to break it down into its components of what we know and don't know, and try to formulate a research question that is narrower in scope detail the methodology by which we can answer that question, provide results from our specific study, and then broaden again to understand and discuss the implications of those results, how they inform the larger problem, their limitations, and the next steps in research to continue to further our overall knowledge and understanding. So in these podcasts, I'm going to discuss the different sections of the Imran model, along with other important parts of a scientific paper, such as the title and abstract, and also general tips for writing and collaborating. This podcast will specifically deal with the introduction section, a seemingly good place to start. So when it comes to the introduction section, I think it makes sense to talk about goals of the section, what we're trying to achieve, and then discuss some different conceptual structures to help achieve those goals, one of which I particularly like, and then provide some examples from recent literature. So what is it that you're trying to achieve with the introduction section of a scientific paper? You're trying to, one, communicate significance, the significance of the overarching problem or issue that you're dealing with, as well as the significance of your specific study. Second, sufficient background to understand how your study fits in the larger framework of research in this area. I commonly see early drafts that discuss way too much background and get off topic. I get it. 
You know a lot about this area, you've done a lot of literature searching, but that doesn't mean that all of it needs to go into the introduction. Stay focused and make sure you are only providing background information that really is relevant to your particular study. For example, if I'm studying compliance with sepsis bundles in community hospitals and limited resource settings, then a discussion of sepsis pathophysiology seems out of place. Whereas if I were studying a new investigational medication to reduce inflammation in sepsis, then pathophysiology of sepsis and mechanisms of drug interaction in that pathway would be relevant background information for the reader. Third, rationale. Why are you engaging in this specific study? And it's important to be logical, methodical, and systematic in explaining your rationale and crafting a clear research question. Fourth, study aims or objectives. I'm biased. I like it when authors explicitly state the study aims are, or the objectives of this study are. It's just less cognitive load for the reader. And fifth, primary and secondary study hypotheses. By communicating significance, providing focused background, and a logical rationale, you've really brought the reader up to speed. They're with you and understand why you're doing this research. And then if you provide clear study objectives and hypotheses, then the reader can really understand what you hope to achieve with the current study, and moreover, can logically then understand your methodology, which is about to follow. For example, let's say I'm interested in procalcitonin for de-escalation of antibiotics for nosocomial pneumonia. I'd start with the seriousness of nosocomial pneumonia itself and describe uncertainties in duration of antibiotic treatment on the individual level. And in the age of precision medicine, the use of biomarkers such as procalcitonin to individualize the duration of antibiotic therapy. The importance being that reducing the antibiotic duration could limit adverse events from antibiotics. Big gun antibiotics in the case of nosocomial pneumonia, which aren't benign. So that gives some background and significance to the issue at hand. And let's say my specific study is to look at our institutional practice with using procalcitonin to de-escalate antibiotics in nosocomial pneumonia. We could also specify which providers and setting and over what period of time. Now let's say my specific objectives are to study how often providers stop antibiotics when procalcitonin falls to half of its peak level, and when they don't stop it, to better understand barriers to using procalcitonin for antibiotic discontinuation. And my hypothesis could be that providers at my institution infrequently stop antibiotics when procalcitonin levels fall to half of their peak level, and that specific barriers to stopping antibiotics will be patient clinical picture, including leukocytosis and fever. So these goals of the introduction which I've articulated, communicating significance, background, rationale, study aims, and hypotheses, can also serve as a guide for the structure of the introduction section. Examining the literature for structuring the introduction section, authors all describe very similar main elements, discussing first what is known, again providing sufficient background to set the stage for your specific study, second what is unknown or lacking, i.e. the basis for your study, and third what you aim to do or the objectives of your study. Now, one of the related structures I like most is that of the problem-gap-hook heuristic, where heuristic is a practical approach to solving a problem, in this case, writing an introduction. 
and I'm going to quote directly from a paper from Lorelei Lingard, which I found really resonated with me. In it, she writes, We tend to think that journals exist to publish scholarly manuscripts, but they don't. They do publish scholarly manuscripts, yes, but that's done in service of a higher purpose. They exist to promote scholarly conversations. Wow. So if we refocus a scientific paper to this metaphor of a conversation, it helps reframe how we devise an introduction section. You are joining an existing scholarly conversation, and now it's your turn to add something relevant to that conversation. We start out by highlighting a problem, one that others can readily identify with. Second, we establish a gap in our current state of knowledge by highlighting what is known from what is unknown. And finally, we provide a narrative hook signifying the importance of the gap, i.e. why the reader should care. So in my sepsis bundle analogy, the intro might start with the high incidence of sepsis and continued high associated mortality today, starting nice and broad. Next sentences focus down to the use of sepsis bundles to reduce said mortality, even detailing typical components of a sepsis bundle, and citing appropriate references, of course. Then using existing literature to cite deficiencies in using sepsis bundles in different studies. Thus, I'm presenting a cardinal problem of compliance with sepsis bundles in real life, which could be an understandable problem for my readers. From there, I try to highlight the gap from what is known to what is unknown. Perhaps the literature has looked at sepsis bundle compliance in major academic centers, but less so in the community and low-resource settings. And perhaps the barriers to implementation, again, have been detailed in academic centers, but less so in community and low-resource settings. I could then elaborate on the objectives of this particular study to document compliance of sepsis bundles in community hospitals and determine barriers to implementation. And... I could hypothesize that bundle compliance will be low in this specific setting and that barriers to implementation will be different from that published in the literature of barriers in academic centers. And then I need to proffer a narrative hook, i.e. why all this discussion of compliance with sepsis bundles in the community even matters. And I could say something like, by better understanding barriers to implementation, we may be able to better use existing resources and focused interventions to overcome these barriers, better comply with proven sepsis bundles, and overall improve mortality associated with this disease. Okay, so if you're getting the gist, let's look at a couple of recent papers and see if we can identify the problem gap hook heuristic in their introduction sections. The first paper, published in New England Journal of Medicine, November 15, 2018, is titled Prednisone for Prevention of Paradoxical Tuberculosis-Associated Iris by Mientes et al. for the PredArt trial team. Now I'm going to paraphrase a bit in the interest of time and engagement. The authors start the introduction by saying that in resource-limited countries, in patients with HIV, TB is the most common opportunistic infection. So again, nice and broad start. The second sentence states, paradoxical tuberculosis-associated immune reconstitution inflammatory syndrome, which I'll refer to IRIS from now on, occurs in 18% of patients. Then they go on to detail symptoms of IRIS, risk factors, and cite as high morbidity. So what we see is that the problem the authors are highlighting is not HIV or concomitant TB, but rather IRIS associated with treating TB and HIV. 
That's the problem. And it's a problem anyone who takes care of such patients will readily identify with. And there's a learning point there. When you're creating your introduction section, write out what the exact problem you're dealing with is. If you can really articulate that, then you kind of have a goalpost that's there that then you can go back and have sentences that are broader before that that then narrow down to this exact problem. The author's next paragraph discusses the need for initiating HIV retroviral therapy two weeks after TB therapy initiation to improve overall survival, this helping to provide some more nuance to the problem. The third paragraph starts with a nod to the known by highlighting relevant literature in this area. The authors report that steroids have been shown to reduce mortality in TB meningitis and TB pericarditis. And then they mention that prednisone has a known benefit specifically for the treatment of iris. So they've done a good job in funneling us down in terms of what is actually known in this area. The next sentence gives their hypothesis that low-dose corticosteroids given early could prevent risk of iris. Now I wish the authors had been a bit more explicit and actually highlighted that gap before moving directly into their hypothesis, maybe providing a line like, However, it is unknown if glucocorticoids given prior to the onset of iris could prevent the syndrome before it occurs. That would better crystallize the gap between what had been done before and what this study seeks to accomplish. And what about a narrative hook? Well, it's really more implicit rather than explicit in this introduction. At the end of the first paragraph, the authors mention the considerable morbidity associated with TB iris. And at the end of the third paragraph, their hypothesis underscores that steroids could reduce the risk of the syndrome. Now, I think they could have used a little bit more explicit of a statement and more convincing hook by saying something at the end like, given the high incidence and high morbidity associated with TB iris in HIV patients, developing evidence-based preventive strategies are important. Okay, so let's do one more recent example. This one comes from Annals of the ATS, November 2018, and the article is titled Risk Factors for and Prediction of Hypoxemia During Tracheal Intubation of Critically Ill Adults. The introduction is split into three paragraphs and starts, Tracheal intubation is a frequently performed and potentially life-saving procedure among critically ill patients. Again, nice and broad start, and then become a little bit more focused in the second sentence with hypoxemia is the most common complication of tracheal intubation in the intensive care unit and is associated with cardiac arrest. So the authors have done a great job at the beginning of identifying the problem, which is peri-intubation, hypoxemia, and cardiac arrest. It's a very recognizable problem to anybody who takes care of these types of patients in the ICU setting. The second paragraph starts to establish the gap in current knowledge, and it goes through some of what is already known, and saying specifically, most prior studies have identified risk factors for difficult airways and demonstrated an association between the number of laryngoscopy attempts required for tracheal intubation and hypoxemia. Only one prior study has directly evaluated risk factors for hypoxemia. So again, they've done a good job with really discussing what is already known about this topic and if I had to be critical, I wish the authors would highlight a little bit more, or discuss a little bit more of what is exactly unknown at this point, to kind of really highlight that gap between the known and unknown.
Because instead, after that, they kind of more or less go straight into kind of the narrative hook aspects. And then finally conclude with their hypothesis that the lowest arterial oxygen saturation and severe hypoxemia during tracheal intubation of critically ill adults could be predicted using routinely available pre-procedural clinical data. Now, I think they do a great job of hitting that narrative hook, both at the beginning of the second paragraph as well as the end of the second paragraph as well. So they say, identifying patients likely to experience low oxygen saturation during tracheal intubation in the ICU may improve clinical practice by encouraging changes in modifiable risk factors. So they're saying that if we can identify which patients are at risk for hypoxemia and cardiac arrest, well, then we as clinicians would probably do something differently with those patients. That's a great narrative hook. And so that's probably a great place to stop as well. So in recap, we talked about the goals of the introduction section, communicating significance, background, rationale, study aims or objectives, and primary and secondary hypotheses. We also discussed at length the problem gap hook heuristic with some practical examples. And a practical tip is to remember to have someone not associated with the study read your introduction and see if it makes logical sense. Sometimes we as a writer are too close to the trees, and often an outsider is useful to ensure clarity of the message. So hope you found this podcast useful. Stay tuned for more ATS-SOME academic writing podcasts in the near future. Happy Turkey Day, everyone!